show. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Is this show killing people? Bad, 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 bad. Something good has to be coming. I'm so proud of us. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? I have so many questions right off the bat. For those of you who are like, my God, Michelle, you're too much. Chill out. It's McDonald's fault. When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm, this one's a challenge. Both of my eyes are twitching. everybody <laughs> and welcome to angry events this is the show where every fortnight i Kath- michelle and i Catherine, bring you three things what are those things michelle a weird thing and a pop culture thing and a research thing and then we take those three things that michelle just listed for us and we try to make them all fit together in a cohesive way That gives you a lesson or a feeling or a vibe that you can take with you. And we refer to that as your fortune cookie. Fortune cookies for everyone. This is episode 40. And because it is episode 40, we do have a special live guest to grab bag with us. Who may be happy to grab bag, but may also have been forced to grab bag. And that's sometimes what happens when you don't email us, grab bags. All of you out there, we might just come for you randomly. See, Michelle and I are both teachers, and we're very good at awkward silences and calling on people. It's episode 40. I am so excited. And you go first. All right. Well, um, so my weird thing is it comes from I was reading the book by Shirley Jackson. We have always lived in the castle. Have you read that? Yes. When I was little, that was one of my favorite books in the world. Yes. I had never read it and I cannot now remember why I suddenly wanted to read it. It was referenced in something else that I was reading in a like philosophical way. And I was like, oh, I really want to read that. And then by the time I got to it, because there was a long hold on it for the library. So by the time it got to me, I could no longer remember why I was reading it, but it was still enjoyable. It's very short. Um, you know, it's a like I think it's like four hours of an audiobook, and it's very much worth it. So if you haven't read it, it's nice and creepy. You get some creepy vibes, and um, yeah. So in that book, I will not say why this topic comes up because I do not want to spoil anything. But they mention rarebit, Welsh rarebit as Ooh, a, as a food. Yes. And um, so my weird thing is, is that I was like, what is rarebit? Because I really don't know. I'm like, is it rabbit? Like, is that like, what is, what is rarebit? And um, so rarebit is 
toasted bread topped with savory cheddar cheese sauce, typically including ingredients such as beer or ale um, and spices. And you might put an egg on top of it, in which case it is buck rarebit and so i was like okay well that's a weird name what does that mean and mustard sometimes right? mustard yes mustard um and the origins of this name are unclear we're not sure where the name comes from it could be it was initially referred to as welsh rabbit as um, whenever i hear it i do think of rabbit and i am even though i know what it is i have a delicious pull apart bread recipe that involves welsh rabbit but it always seems meaty it's a weird it's a weird title for that that thing so they think they think that it was peasants welsh peasants who couldn't afford meat that were calling it rabbit as so like this oh. is like the early Beyond Meat, right? Like a, like well, the although Beyond Ode. Meat isn't because of a lack of affordability because it's cost more than Very the expensive. But, it's like uh, a tofurkey. You can't yes. have the real thing. Here you go. So, um, and they were using Could cheese. you imagine if like anthropologists deep into the future try to figure out tofurkey? <laughs> it could be like this. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe these were just maybe these were just well not vegan because it's cheese but maybe these were just vegetarian yeah. welsh peasants who were trying to um jazz up the vegetarian options for this <laughs> <laughs> is just a marketing ploy really right but um so the the word rare bit doesn't have another meaning like it does it it was created just it has no meaning oh, aside wow. from this dish so, and I just thought that was cool. So that... it has to be like, it sounds like rabbit, like tofurkey sounds like tofurkey. <laughs> that is wild. I love that so much. And that's it. That's my weird thing. When, uh, could you figure out like when that originates yes. from about? Um, earliest cited use of Welsh rabbit was 1725. And by 1785, it was being called rarebit. So I like to imagine Ooh, it's like it's like when you had almond milk and now it's, it has yep. to be spelled with a Y. That was a, yeah. That's a, just what I was about to say, where they were like, you can't call it milk because it's not milk. It doesn't come from I'm like nobody thinks that the almond milk comes from a cow. But but fine, we'll spell it fancy. And so no, it's like yeah. the, the hunting authorities. Came they were like, the... you can't tell people this is rabbit. We have the rabbit. Fine. It's rabbit. I will put in the show links then. Welsh rarebit is like fine. It's like stuff on toast, basically. But I have a pull apart recipe. It's hard to make. You have to make the the bread. It's like you make a beer bread dough, and how you shape it is very difficult. But it involves the flavors of rarebit, and it is one of the most delicious things. And for like a decade straight, my husband asked for that for his birthday every year, and it's so good. Well, Michelle from rarebit. Two, my weird thing. I don't um kind of like we have always lived in the castle. I don't know how this came into my like my zeitgeist and my frame of reference because it's fairly old. I think it's over a year old. But I had not heard of it. I hope you have not heard of it. And I hope you'll talk to me and still want to be friends with me once we've uh, explored this topic as a serious topic. Um let's read the headline that I saw, which is black-eyed peas, my humps, ripped off by pooping unicorn toy, lawsuit claims. 
I am so excited about this reconnection that's about to happen that I I can't even I go keep going. So I'm going to just read some of this to you. The pooping unicorn toy, known as the Poopsie Slime Surprise, is a brand of slime pooping unicorn that currently for reasons, retails anywhere from $100 to $300 on Amazon. Here's a description of the toy that I will read to you verbatim. Make magical unicorn poop slime with poopsie slime surprise. With a little unicorn magic and sparkle, you can customize unicorn poop and transform it multiple times. When you gotta go, store the poop for magical fun anytime. Poopsie surprise unicorn magically poops slime each time you feel each time you feed your surprise unicorn and sit her on her glitter potty she creates surprises collectible unicorn poop slime transform your unicorn poop over and over again with unicorn magic over 20 magic surprises included with each surprise unicorn for unicorns to collect will you unroll rainbow bright star or oops starlight so that's what an oopsie surprise slime unicorn is. Oh, I know. Because, oh, you know. Because in uh, mine is not a unicorn, but in my house at this very moment is a pooping <laughs> surprise turtle that you fill with glitter and then you put it on its little toilet and it poops it out. And the reason that I have this in my house is because I don't know exactly where it originated, but somebody's kid got it as a gift and they let them play with it for a day and then put it in a paper bag and explained very carefully that this is the kind of toy that cannot stay in one home for very long. So you have to put it in a paper bag and pass it to another home. So now it has instructions on the bag that you can only play with it for a day and then you have to put it back in its bag until you find somebody else to hand it to. Now, is this a monkey's paw situation? A curse? Is this because it's just too great for any one kid to have for too long? We say it's because it's too great and it's really because we don't want glitter all over our house for more than one day ah, it's full of glitter well <laughs> you are ahead of the curve you are far and it's ahead also noisy it's noisy because i had never heard i i i had never heard it i know slime is a thing but i didn't understand that magical glitter slime that we treat like poop was so exciting as a children's toy so i feel like this is going to be a letdown for you because you know about this but I'm going to keep going because it's hey, I'm sure me. it is not. I'm sure that many of our listeners have not gotten a right. surprise pooping right. animal in a paper bag. So we're still talking about a lawsuit <laughs> at the end of the day. So and and the reason that the unicorn poopsie slime surprise is ex- so expensive is because of this lawsuit. They're not in production anymore. So you have to find like what's left of them. So in addition, funny, you should say that it's noisy. In addition to pooping slime, the toy also dances to a song called My Poops whenever its heart-shaped belly button is pressed. And there's also an animated video which shows the unicorns dancing to this. And my question for you, Michelle, is are you ready? I'm not, but you're not. No one ever could be.
what? So there <laughs> you have it. Oh, I have something. What? Give me uh, well, initial. So I, I mean, one they committed like that. That could have been like a ten-second clip, and they were like, "No, we are, we are leaning in." Um, but I mean, obviously, it is like a parody of my humps. But are we suing for that now? Like, I right. Now, yeah, clearly, if you heard that, you would think about the song My I Humps. Mean, yeah, like, nobody's going to go listen to that instead. Nobody's like, oh, I really want to listen to Black Eyed Peas, My Humps. But this will do instead. Like, it's not like a replacement. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Maybe Kids Bops is mad that they can't do it now. But, yeah, it seems like it falls clearly under, like, it's transformative, it's parody. I don't know why it exists. I don't know why it's two minutes long. I don't well, know why they feel the need to say I'm going to eat up my pupitas. Why they have Fart Jacobs and Louis Poopton are also referenced in that. It is an epic but saga. You, you don't have to be something whose existence I can justify in order to have fair use parody. Yeah, also Mark, ja- Mark Jacobs referenced here as Fart Jacobs. They're not suing. Um, Louis Vuitton referenced here as poopy Louis Poopton. Not suing. So um, I will link to this as well. But in the I read about this in Variety, they have the whole lawsuit. And the lawsuit claims that the two compositions do bear a strong resemblance. And it says that first the title of the infringing work is My Poops, which is an obvious play on the name of the copyrighted compositions, My Humps. And um, they go on to list other similarities, including the melody, counter melody lyrics, chord progression, and the use of a lead singer who uses a similar delivery and vocal inflection as used by Fergie on the original song recording. Various software to look at the actual original tracks that they're using right to make the song and they can instead of just listening or doing a side-by-side comparison they can find the digital um the original digital tracks and look at them side by side instead of listening to them side by side and this is a really interesting thing that happened um when glee the the television show glee did a version of another song and um, it was a song owned by someone else, but they did like an acapella Glee Club version of the song, which another person claimed that they had done that arrangement. And so the people at Glee, when that person sued, said, look, this is an arrangement of this song. You don't own this song. But then it was discovered that Glee had used their actual audio tracks. And so then it became a difference, not of copying or copyright, but stealing of taking the your actual, actual work, Yeah, the actual work. And so that they did, the suit here claims that they did that kind of annotation and that the Poopsie <laughs> Unicorn song may most likely have stolen somehow the Black Eyed Peas digital recordings oh. to make this, to not even bother to make their own. Well, then, yeah, that's not parody. That's theft. I mean, that's a different. Yeah. That it's not right. It's not about copyright or anything. It's about actual theft of work that is produced. Right. Instead of like making a lithograph copy or a um, 
a dorm room poster of Van Gogh's sunflowers. It's more like going into the museum and ripping the Van Gogh sunflowers right, off the right. wall in a way, um, except with poop and glitter and my humps. So which... ripping, ripping Van Gogh's sunflowers off the wall and covering it in poop and glitter. <laughs> poopy, poopy, glitter, glitter. But it just tickled me because I didn't know about these pooping toys. And then just that song... I could not believe it was real. I couldn't believe it went on so long. It's such a fever dream. And no wonder they so, were able to lean in so heavily if they didn't have to do any of the work of creating the music. Like, right. That's why I could. That's probably one of the reasons it goes on forever. As of 2020, the lawsuit's been ongoing for a while. In 2020, they stopped making this toy. And in 2022, late 2022, they shut down the YouTube channel for this toy. So not, I think. They're just shutting it down. Yeah. Not looking good for them. So not parody, just theft. Fun fact. Weird fact. And that is my weird thing. Oh. Oh. But we're not done. Oh. Because. Oh, yes. That's right. We have our special live guest. We have a special live guest with a weird thing. Okay, let me. Hey. Hello. Yay. So, everyone, welcome to the live 40th episode recording, Mr. Grant. Grant. Yay. <laughs> you may know Grant from the Grab Bag song that you <laughs> just heard. You introduce him. That's him singing. So, Grant, welcome to our 40th and, episode. I'm, and I'm also, really excited to be here. All, all of the music from, um, Foley's Follies too, right? And the intro song to the podcast. Every doing... iteration. All of our music. Yes. Some, some of the stuff from the original version I didn't do. Like there's some, but eventually I think now I've done all the music since since Foley's Follies. I've done all the music at this point. Yep. Yeah. So so yeah, so I have uh I have a weird thing for you. And I, I think that it ended up thinking of it because of uh, music related, because I was like, all right, my my role in this is I've been doing the music. Um, have either of you ever heard of a pyrophone? No. So a pyrophone is also known as a fire explosion organ or a fire explosion calliope. So pyro is in pyrotechnics. Yes, is in pyrotechnics. It is an internal combustion musical instrument. And it actually exists. This is a thing that is real. Um, it makes notes through explosions or rapid combustion and uses gas burners in um, kind of cylindrical glass tubes. Why? <laughs> yes, is... yes, why? is the... <laughs> Why? How? When? Where? So, okay. I actually, I have like a lot. I have answers, some of which is speculative. I, I have like the actual historical information I can give you. And, and I have some speculation as to why this exists in some ways. So that's total speculation. So it was invented by a guy named Georges Frederick Eugene Kastner, who was born in Strasbourg, France in 1852. So this is something from like the 1800s. 
Um, he died in Bonn, Germany in 1882. In a horrible music accident? Yeah, in a horrible... <laughs> his, his instrument exploded. Um, and that was only like, he was only about 30 when he died. Um, and he was the son of a composer named Jean-Georges Kastner. Uh, and he was a composer who's one of the first people to write music for the inventions of Adolf Sachs, the inventor of the saxophone. So I kind of am guessing they're probably where people are like, oh, the guy who came up with the saxophone, that's a good new musical instrument. And so I'm assuming there might have been like this time where the people started trying to come up with new forms of musical instruments. I'm not really sure why that would have led you to um, explosions in glass tubes, but. I mean, so. so can you only use it once? Like, is it like, no, 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 no. I and I have like I have a clip that I'll I'll like eventually I guess I'll I'll pull out the sound for it and you can play, but I will show both of you. Um, but yeah, and so um, Kastner has a patent. Uh, I probably I mean I could read some of the patent things, but it isn't something. It's basically just him being like, yes, gaseous mixtures that explode in tubes create sounds. Um, he was not the first person to come up with this idea though uh so the history of like internal combustion instruments precede the pyrophone even though i don't think anybody like patented or came up with a successful one that actually worked um in 1777 a guy named brian higgins who is an irish natural philosopher uh or chemist today um he basically hypothesized that like in this sort of thing, the sound would come from hydrogen burning in a glass tube. He was kind of the first person to identify that if you burned hydrogen in a glass tube, it'd make noise. And then after that, in 1818, Michael Faraday, very famous sort of uh, scientist, yeah. um, basically he kind of first said the sound actually comes from rapid explosions is what's happening isn't just the hydrogen's burning is that it's actually exploding rapidly. And the resonance of the air <laughs> is, is moving with the tube. Um, and there's other people, like, so there actually were debates in physics that had to do with, like, how these explosions in glass tubes make noise. Um, and in fact, the pyrophone ended up being, like, this was, it wasn't just sort of this random thing a weirdo made, even though it kind of is that. <laughs> uh <laughs> It was uh, shown in the 1878 Paris exhibition, and composers even tried to use it in operas, and a composer named Wendelin, I guess I should say Wendelin Weisheimer, who was a student of Franz Liszt, who was a friend and patron of Richard Wagner, wrote a piece in 1880 that was called The Five Sacred Sonnets for Voice, Flute, Oboe, Clarinet, Pyrophone, and Piano. One of these things is not like the others. <laughs> <laughs> interesting when these just really made it into the canon yeah. <laughs> and which was a canon so uh today some pyrophones are actually made with propane and gasoline either or so they still make them so they, yeah, yeah, people, people have made, and the people that make them um use like car fuel intake manifolds and they can use spark plugs and oh, so wow. it's like glass tubes and you have like spark plugs and stuff like that so um i have a little clip i just got you can like I, I googled images and the images are phenomenal so like i hope people will look this it up it looks like an organ on fire on fire that's a fire the, organ the thing that is coming to mind for me is i'm embarrassed to admit this but i'm gonna do it anyway i love i love the demolition derby 
and the people like go and uh fix their cars with the pipes that like like blow the fire out of them yeah and so yeah. i want i want to see like a really high scale demo derby where it, where <laughs> a demo They're derby making some music a yes. demo derby opera yes <laughs> michelle how do we win a macarthur genius grant so we can put on a demolition derby opera with our pyrophone cars i also like that you said you were embarrassed to admit that and i think that's the fourth time you've admitted that on this podcast <laughs> but, but then i would have to imagine that somebody has listened to all 40 episodes that's true that's i true. think i've said i'm embarrassed to admit it every time to be fair okay so that, that, <laughs> those tracks, you'll never get over that yeah. So here is uh here's what the pyrophone sounds like. very carnival yeah it really does noise what i find is crazy is like clearly this is linked to like a keyboard and it's like the moment they stop depressing it even though the flames are going continuously it stops making the noise yeah so it is really it's really weird <laughs> it's very mesmerizing you know what this i can't say that it sounds like this but the set sa- like the the eeriness of the sound reminds me of this have you ever thrown a chunk of ice across like a frozen pond in the middle of yes, the night like and it makes the that- vibration of it yeah and it makes that weird like aliens are coming noise yeah it reminds me of that and not that they sound the same but they have that same like quality yeah yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm really I had no idea this existed and I'm really happy to learn it existed, (laughs) but I'm simultaneously, is there like a German word for when you're very happy to learn something exists, but then simultaneously become melancholic because you don't think you'll ever be able to like personally experience it? I mean, there's a German word for everything. So yes, but I don't know what it is. is, But I'm simultaneously (laughs) thrilled and then sent into a deep depression that I cannot play the pyrophone that i cannot have a demolition well, derby opera people pyrophone. still make them let's not yeah. sell. we were just before the podcast we were just talking about how shouting into the void sometimes brings us special gifts so we could possibly play a pyrophone i i'm not gonna rule it out can we build our own pyrophone i, mean, I, I cannot but it... <laughs> oh but we're with our music guy i i mean i do can think that it's almost, is it's that maybe, maybe with your dad like because i do think you have to be probably a car person to be i think maybe episode 50 and on we have a new theme song played entirely (laughs) entirely on microphone (laughs) okay that's it that's 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 what i got thank you that was i am so happy to know this thing this is amazing so i i was again i'm very excited i hope this is a good uh, live grab bag it's an excellent live grab bag thank you so much
is this a totally stupid thought and i'm tired that like you know when fireworks you shoot off a firework and it makes such a cool noise do you think someone was trying to harness that oh Somebody? like they're trying to like the crackle sounds oh. like the or, oh. or just even the yeah the screecher screaming noise and if and if that's not the origin of the pyrophone can we make a new instrument that's powered by fireworks and what would that be called other than a mistake <laughs> something very dangerous how about the freedom the freedom of phone oh jeez <laughs> i don't know i will just i will say that if there are any eccentric extremely wealthy people listening to this podcast who would like to invest in some projects we've got hyrophone opera here we've got firework a phone um so please you know make some it's dreams make, come true it's making me think about how many instruments end in phone because mm -hmm. i couldn't think of a different name for the firework a phone there's xylophone saxophone, saxophone sousaphone because mm -hmm. firework and net doesn't work yeah it's hmm. clarinet clarinet and clarinet are like yeah tuba trumpet we we are now just gonna name instruments. Again. I wonder if I wonder if that like this actually is making me think of like a, a it's like going into like the saxophone and the influence of the saxophone um, and list right and you said yeah. Franz list was part of it like listomania yeah. too yeah like the history of the pyrophone is 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 very indebted it's it also just makes me think in, uh, historically about what won't hit even though it's like right in the middle of everything yeah why is it that the saxophone became massively popular this while is... the pyrophone i mean is a historical oddity you couldn't <laughs> learn pyrophone in high school but right. everyone would want to that would be like <laughs> everyone would want to learn pyrophone yes have a good rest of the podcast Mwah. thank you <laughs> Well, well, little kiss for the grab backers. <laughs> oh man, I'm I'm so excited! I was like live podcast. That was fun. Yeah, that's super fun. Bye. I'm so excited. Bye. That was so fun. And I don't know if everyone heard if it picked up on the microphone. Him going, that was so fun to do a live live <laughs> grab bag. Um, everyone. yeah. So it's fun, and you should do it too. Are we ready for pop culture? I mean, from here on out, I'm kind of just vamping. So if you are, I am. <laughs> My pop culture. I want to remind everybody that we do not coordinate in advance. Not at all. My pop culture is that I did not have a pop culture thing. Um, and I saw a headline. I was I had a very busy day today with work. And I saw a headline. And I was like, oh, that'll be my pop culture thing. Just thinking that like I would be able to go Google an article about it and pull it up and read it and be ready to go. Except for that the headline I saw was not true. So my pop culture <laughs> thing is a lie. Um, so, <laughs> so the headline I saw 
was that Miley Cyrus was being sued for defamation. <gasps> by... I saw this. This isn't true. It's okay, not I'll, true. I'll let, you, I'll let you continue, but yes. I also saw this today. <laughs> yeah, that Miley Cyrus was being sued by defamation for Liam Hemsworth over the song Flowers. And I don't, I'm sure you've heard the song Flowers because by now we've all heard the song Flowers. And it's catchy. And I don't know, the video's fun. And she clearly is referencing him. But, like, it's just a breakup song, right? Like, And so I was, like, getting prematurely angry. I'm like, this is not defamation. Like, you can write a breakup song. And I was going through the lyrics in my head. I'm like, none of it is even factual, right? Like, it's just her opinion about, like, most of it's just her saying how she can treat herself well. Like, yeah. it's, like I was like, if this is defamation, and, you know, the, the standard of defamation, defamation for a public figure or famous person is so high and I was like how could this be true and it isn't so that made me feel better but I am just really so I want to tell you about how it came about so I am reading a daily mail I know but um a daily mail article that has some information on how this has happened there's an account falsely claiming that Hemsworth is losing his contract with Netflix and the the witcher yeah yeah And then they put out a leaked document purportedly showing this lawsuit with signatures from Miley Cyrus and Hemsworth on it, which I don't know if that, I don't know. But (laughs) upon further investigation, they just went to like one of those legal sites where they're like, here, you can download a, a form to fill out, you know, like file your own legal brief or whatever and then like blocked out some parts of it to make it look serious and then went and like stole um signatures and then intentionally made it look grainy so that it would be hard to read it in too much detail and so and it just made me laugh because we're going on and on about the sphere of all these deep fakes and the sphere of like ai generated content and this is clearly somebody just doing a pretty hack job of like printing out a document that you can download and it's not even photoshop that's right. like adobe acrobat right you could probably do it like on your iphone with the, <laughs> with the yeah. editing software just and so um which isn't to say we shouldn't be worried about deep fakes i'm just saying that it maybe we should be extra worried about deep fakes because it doesn't <laughs> seem like it takes much to trick us like media literacy these days is not what it should be it is Definitely not. Because, I mean, I saw this headline in like one of my social media feeds and I don't follow junk place. I don't I don't know which place put it out, but I don't follow like junk trash pop culture places. Um, So somebody was tricked at a relatively high level enough to make it a headline. Um, And at least like the Daily Mail here made made the inside the wild rumors about the leaked documents um and then they say here's why it's bogus so they're still Mm. getting clicks off of it but they're getting clicks now that makes me wonder like is the entire thing just created by some pop culture website so that they can then report on this fake pop culture phenomenon like is it all a you know well it also reminded me of a woman who was like whenever i need help with a um computer problem or like a coding problem she's like I go in and I ask in the coding um forums and then I make another account and I go in and give a very wrong answer because people won't help me just to help me but people will correct someone and then I get the answer that I need so I feel like it has some of that same energy absolutely (laughs) yeah oh yeah but yeah yeah people on reddit would rather tell you what you're wrong about this this I was thinking about bringing up for the podcast but it made me too sad and I didn't know how to talk about it and I don't want to talk about it 
But but now we're here. We're somehow. here. And again, I saw it on Twitter. And basically, it was um, a postcardy picture, like kind of one of those photo drawings of a very beautiful gothic-esque train station. And then um, underneath it was what was implied to be that same part of the world now. And in the first photo, you know, there's lots of greenery and um, people are walking around and green space and this building is beautiful. And then in the second one, it's a lot of industrial space, a lot of hard grays. Um, People aren't as well dressed. That's another conversation about like how we dress and if it's fancy or how that's perceived. And it was like there was a McDonald's and they're like, we as a civilization are really on a downward turn. Now, what that first image had in the corner that I don't know if anyone was paying attention to was that it was from Essen. And I'm bad with dates, but it was Essen pre-World War II. So that was bomb, right? The Allies bombed that part of Germany, among many others. And so their implication is that this doesn't exist anymore because mankind sucks and wants to eat at McDonald's with no self-awareness that it was bombed by most likely U.S. forces to stop Nazism. Right. Which, because this was such a trash Twitter account, I think inadvertently probably is their point that the world was better before we just tried to stop Nazism. But, oh, it made me upset. And I scrolled for maybe five minutes of quick scrolling, hundreds of replies until finally someone said, do you understand that this was bombed and why it was bombed? And I'm sure that comment just got ignored or buried and no contextual or. (sighs) Media literacy is media literacy. I think that's the takeaway for this pop culture. So speak, speaking of, is that, yeah, speaking of um, media literacy, my <laughs> pop culture, first, first, I want to do a quick brag, which is, um, I'm never going to let a moment pass in which I do not talk about the theater troupe Fake Friends. And I just feel like I do the whole world a disservice if, much like telling you fun animal facts, I don't give you an update on what the theater group Fake Friends is doing. They're Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, If you have forgotten or this is your first time listening, they did the play Circle Jerk, which was both a streaming online video digital live play during 2020 that they then reperformed as a live in-person play. They did a play um, streaming called This American Wife. They did Ratatouille, the TikTok musical. And they won a Pulitzer for Circle Jerk. They just this week won an Obie Award for Circle Jerk. So it's like super award winning. And I learned, thanks to Instagram, that they are currently, I live so close to Duke's campus right now, Duke University, that they are currently invited guests of Duke University to do a brand new play that they've never done before. Parents came to town. Um, my birthday is coming up and they took me out because they're not going to see me for an early birthday drink at my my favorite, favorite, favorite cocktail bar in Durham, which is where I'm at right now. 
called Kingfisher, which is excellent. And so we're sitting there with my parents. We're having a drink. We're having a great time. And I see zip by me one of the members, her name's Cat, of Fake Friends. And I shriek. Like I shriek like a like a little mouse crawled up my foot. And my whole family goes, what? And I and I look and I go, no, no, couldn't be. And then I see another member of Fake Friends go by, Michael Breslin. And I just, I'm, I get hummingbird heart. And I genuinely think I was surprised that I don't think there's another set of people that could leave me as starstruck right now as that oh so you are a, you are a devoted super fan, fan. A long history super fan so they sit right next to us well this right next to us in this small 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 space i should say they sit. it's a very small space and there's a two top right next to us and then a four top and they sit at the four top because there's a lot of them my parents are immediately like what is wrong with you and so i'm trying to subtly be like ah, to explain who they are without um, fangirling where they can hear you yeah i'm trying to be cool we are getting ready to go and the two top next to us turns to my father my father wanders away for a second and the two top turns to him when he comes back and they go thank you and we don't know what's happening and then my dad leaves again and there's just some fluster and then um i leave i get my coat we're gonna go out to dinner i leave but my dad goes you should wave at them wait wave at the fake friends people and i went dad i will not and i was embarrassed it was like i was 12 again with my parents even though i really wanted to wave at them and so i head out and i stop and i see my parents aren't behind me and i wait and i wait and it turns out (laughs) that my dad Saw how excited I was and asked the um, waitress if he could buy their drinks. And she mistook it for the drinks of the people next to us. And he went, no, 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 no. I mean them. And so it started this chain reaction. Everybody's drinks. To where, yeah. So he bought an unwitting couple's drinks and they were thrilled, made their night. And then the waitress was like, I will comp that table's drinks for you. So my parents went up and talked to them and like, my daughter's a big fan of your work. And it was just amazing. And I was really stoked that I did not have to talk to them in person, but they got talked to. It was great because, yes, I've talked about every single thing they've ever done on this podcast. So that is like a pop culture thing for me. And that would be enough. But that's just a quick brag. Um, My pop culture thing is why can't I just like what everyone else likes? What is wrong with me? Why am I broken? Um, I am saying this in part because we have so much in common a lot of times. And so the few times, like pop culturally, especially when we don't agree, I'm like, what is happening here? Why is this? And I just want to admit to you, because I know you've been wanting to talk about this show, and I'm like, let's talk away, that I have watched The Last of Us, and I hate it, and I don't understand it. it. I hate Mm. it. I hate it. I spend the whole time yelling at it. I don't like it. I watched like episode three that everyone loved, and I thought it was really like hollow i don't know can we can we just spend like an hour on this podcast figuring it out together i think people want to listen to that right i do okay so i feel like i'm broken because everyone loves this show and i trust you intrinsically but i don't get it i just don't get it and i mean I and i like would say that, like something. we 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 are uh, the venn diagram of the pop culture we like is 
significant, but there is there is slivers on either. I would say that your external sliver is bigger than mine. The things that you like that I don't, but but there's it goes both ways, right? Yeah, yeah. I would say yeah, absolutely. Things I like that you don't like is a much bigger list than the things you like that I don't like. So maybe that's why. I but find I think it. I think the list of things you like is just bigger. So that's that's. I also... just consume so much yeah. more. Yeah. Which I mean, so, so this is worthwhile to figure out, like, because you you do consume and enjoy a lot of media. So when you're like, no, I don't, I think that that's worth exploring. So um, let me let me see if I can figure out what I like about it, and then maybe that could be because that feels like unfair because everyone likes it. Everyone likes it. I mean, I just found it. So my thing with episode, so can, we can talk about episode three now. Cause, cause that yes. was the thing I wanted. Okay. So episode three, it's about to get spoiled. If you don't know, you should probably know by now it's, it's the one that everybody was up in arms with because, um, Nick Offerman plays a gay man. And apparently we still can't handle that in America because we're, I don't know, repressed. People got and, upset about that? Oh my gosh. Yes. They were like, uh, somebody tweeted at him that he was having his man card revoked and he tweeted back like, finally, this burden has been lifted. He's fantastic. <laughs> I saw that interview with him where he's like, in my family, I'm not very manly. I went to theater school. I did ballet. I wear dance belts. Yeah. Um, But so the thing that bothered me about that episode is everybody was like, it's such a sad episode. It's so sad. It's so, so just, it's going to rip, rip your heart out. And I got to the end of it. I was like, that's the, that's a happy ending. Like the whole time, because I knew that everybody was saying how sad it was. Cause I had to wait to watch it. So I was just so braced for like something terrible, terrible to happen. And, and then I was like, this is a happy ending. Like what? They got is, like, to live out their lives right? with the people they love. That's right? nice. And then like go on their own terms and not as a violent horde of mushroom zombie. Like I just, like, I don't know. I just, people, people's understanding of like, what is a satisfactory ending for a life just doesn't match with mine and this happens to me a lot where people are like oh my god that's so sad and I'm like that the 99 year old person died after um but that wasn't even the problem with it the problem I have with it and the whole show is that I feel like it's I'm constantly missing something and yet there's also too much exposition and I just feel like where there's exposition and world building and character building is just wasted and not where I need it to be. And so I don't care about anyone. I didn't even care about them. And I don't know what's going on. I'm constantly confused, except I do. I know I'm not missing anything and I know what's going on. And yet I'm constantly confused. And I'm like, who is that? Why do we care? What are we doing? Why are we going across this wet floor now to climb up into the top of the building and i know i know it's because they had to find the firefly people but that's just the show gives to me this constant like i i think i because i would normally be annoyed by that but i think i just accepted the video game veneer of it right which is exactly what it's like in a video game no you're like now you meet a person and this person has vital information now we get some backstory so that you will care like so i think so I just if you can just go along with that then that it's doing that really well but you're and you're... i just can't let it go because every time i see it i'm like oh now now here's the 
here's the cutscene. Here's the let's get across this. It's so video game esque, and I know it is adapted from a video game, but I think it's making choices that a video game has to make. That it is a television show could do something different, and it's just confusing to me about why it is. It's stay. I know you want to stay true to the video game and the source material, but I just don't think you need to do that like in the format, format. in the storytelling like in format. I need it. I think it's too video game and not like tele- I, television. I mean, I think that's a completely valid. Um, like I, I would not argue again. I just it just doesn't bother me. But I think that if it bothered you, that is a completely well, valid criticism of it. Yeah, like the whole Nick Offerman yeah. Murray Bartlett thing. I can see that as a video game where it is a cutscene and you kind of watch them go through their day and they get older and older. And in a video game, that would wreck me because you just have like different. Yeah, you go into them in different ways. You're more absorbed, I think, in different ways. Not more, but you're just absorbed in different ways. Well, great. We figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. And I like those kind of vignette sort of uh, slice, like slice of feeling mood boards when they are presented to me. It's like a little charcuterie of feelings. And a I, charcuterie I'll... of feelings. I did a book club with my husband because he has not read Slaughterhouse-Five and I read it when I was really young and we both reread Slaughterhouse-Five, kind of inspired by you talking about it. And we got in a vicious, vicious debate about how he thought that book was hopelessly sad. Not hopeless, but just so sad and so serious. And I was like, no, it is hilarious, absurdist, uplifting. I find it endlessly comforting. I think it's a very comforting book. And I don't think it is sad at all. So... That that's the other thing is if you have any thoughts or want to talk about maybe later. Yeah. I am I am reading Mother Night right now, um, which is some of the characters from Mother Night show up in Slaughterhouse Five. Um, and then Slaughterhouse Five is the next book. So I I have reread it in adulthood, but it has been years. So I um will have it fresh on my mind in about four weeks. So if you want to like I'm very excited to read um, Slaughterhouse-Five again because I remember it very fondly, but I won't say in what way. It was a joy. It was an absolute joy in that it held up in a way I was not expecting because I loved it when I was little. And sometimes so when like, you revisit the things you loved when you were little, you're like, oh, shouldn't should have just left that one in the memories. Like most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but this one, and I thought, It just was a miracle because there's also like, well, if you read it in fourth grade or so, you're going to miss so much. There's going to be so much you don't get. And if that's not the case, you won't like it as an adult. But no, it's both. I think I got pretty much all there was to get. You just get it in a different way. And there were two scenes I had totally forgotten that clearly when I was little had a huge effect on me. I think like affects like my whole being and how I am in the world that it felt like a Proustian Madeline except it wasn't just like oh a sense memory it was like when 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 a film goes into someone's eye into their brain like a fashion like through the eyeball into the brain it felt like fourth grade Catherine's hand reached like that into my brain and pulled me into her brain and I just felt it how I felt in that moment because it was so strong but I had forgotten it 
And like, wow, what a lucky and amazing experience to have. And it was, it was awesome. I so, can't, I can't wait to reread it so we can dig in deeper. I am. Yay. Yay. Okay. So that's pop culture. Pop culture. Michelle said her research is 70 million years long. My research is a secret. So let's go. I'm looking at my, okay. All right. <laughs> mm. Do you know who William Joyce is? Uh, wait, am I confusing him with someone else? I want to say, boy, howdy, do I? So we'll find out. If you- I really think I do know who William Let's see how many facts then I have to get before you can confirm or or it'll be a game. I'm worried I'm confusing him with someone else. My William Joyce was born in New York City in 1906 to British parents and moved to Ireland at age three. That sounds right. Like it could be him so far. He was recruited into the British Army during the Irish War of Independence as a courier in 1921, which I think means he was only 15. Oh, wow. I don't know that about. Okay. He was nearly assassinated while serving in the British Army and therefore sent out of the country for his own protection. While he was studying in England, he started to gain an interest in Nazism. Still don't know. Okay. He was permanently scarred after an attack by communists after a political party meeting that he attended. And he then became a talented speaker and climbed the ranks of British fascist organizations. I don't think we're talking about the same William Joyce. Okay. I like, I, so how many was that? One, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six. Six facts in to determine. All right. <laughs> he, he then started his own political party called the National Socialist League in the late 1930s. But when the other members disagreed with him about how they were going to organize it, he dissolved it. And then he traveled to Germany and got recu- recruited by Joseph Goebbels, the Ministry of Pop- Propaganda for the Nazis. Oh, host. not. And I just, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I confused William Joyce with someone named Henry James. And I don't know how I did that. <laughs> Henry James, the author? Yeah. Very like, unfair. Um, turn of, turn, turn of the screw? Is that my? I don't, maybe now I'm confusing him with someone else. Oh, no. Oh, goodness. Anyway, anyway. Too many Britishy everyday, everyday My, names. my British American, I think my I'm going to stop now. Tell me more about William Joyce. Okay. So he started his own political party, the National Socialist League, in the late 1930s. But then when other members disagreed with him about how it was being organized, he dissolved it. He traveled to Germany where he got recruited by Joseph Goebbels, who was the ministry, the head of the Ministry of Propaganda for the Nazis. Um, He hosted a radio show called Germany Calling that was designed specifically to spread propaganda to Brits and Americans, and he did a very, very good job at it. His primary job early on was to sow distrust in democratic governments and to make the British people in particular distrust their own government. And so it was lots of just like criticisms of, you know, is it really democracy? They tell you that, you know, that you're electing somebody, but aren't who's really in charge and probably should sound familiar to you if you have been in America in the last six years um right and so that was his primary propagandist job was to just kind of sow 
discontent among the everyday British people. And he had a popular segment called Schmidt and Smith, where he played Smith and a German colleague played Schmidt. And they would just, um, you know, banter together about how terrible the British government was. And his program was considered very entertaining among British people. Uh, he was fiery and um, energetic, and they felt like they wanted to tune in to hear the other side of things. And, um, he was kind of being put up against like pretty dry BBC coverage of what was going on. And he was just much more interesting to listen to. So um, Gables was very excited about this, saw it as a roaring success that he had found this man and put him in this position. And the British press nicknamed him Lord Ha Ha and would like draw cartoons of him as a donkey because they called it, they said that he had, it was a sneering character about the British culture and that name caught on. So Gables even referred to him as Lord Ha Ha when he was writing in his diary, which is just oh, a really, man. It's a really funny image to me to imagine this like, you know, this terrible Nazi war criminal di- putting in his diary about how proud he is of having found this like and then Lord Ha Ha, I need to tell, you know, like so he's so so he, he's patting himself on the back for having back for having found this man and putting him in this position to sow all this discord and hate. Um, So he gave Lord Ha Ha, who he has now become widely known as, a raise and a promotion. So after Nazis invaded several countries in 1940, the rhetoric on Lord Ha Ha's show became much more violent. And at that point, the British people were like, "Eh, maybe maybe we won't listen to this. Like it took it took that for them to to really understand what was happening and who was propping him up and where this that it was propaganda, right? right. Um, and so that to see what a dangerous threat this man really was, and at that point he became one of the most publicly recognized war criminals because he had his voice was everywhere, right? And like his identity as. Um, he identified himself as a British national, but he was actually an American citizen because he was born in New York and he oh, didn't yeah. England until he was three. So um, his identity wasn't even true. But the whole point was that he was this he was a Brit who had seen through the the British government and had seen the ways. And so um, his credibility was built on that. Um, and he became highly sought after as a war criminal and he was captured in may of 1945 in germany and put on trial for his crimes he was sentenced with high treason and he was um hung and killed on january 3rd 1946 for his crimes so why am i telling you about this i am telling you about yeah, this. why are you telling me about this also it was it was william james and he's henry james's brother the author so there we go sorry <laughs> I am telling you about this because as I, as we just mentioned, I am reading Mother Night, which is oh, a, yeah. which is a Kurt Vonnegut novel that is all about Nazi propaganda, I guess. Um if those of you who do not know the plot of Mother Night, I it is it is such a weird book because it follows a character. The character's name is Howard W. Campbell Jr., who is a Nazi propagandist who ran a radio show. Um fictional that name is not of a real character and in the book he is captured in 1945 and um is going to be sentenced for his crimes but then he just kind of gets disappeared and moved to new york city and given a new identity and new documents but eventually he goes back to using his old name because nobody really is looking like 
Howard Campbell, nobody really cares anymore. And it's now the 1960s. He says that he was never working for the Nazis, that he was an American spy and that he had been um, given, he was giving out coded information. And so he was learning information about um, German attack plans and through codes, sending it out. He didn't really know what information he was giving. He was just occasionally given like scraps of paper to say, say these words in this way. And so he was sending secret messages out to the Americans um, to help them win the war. And so that's why he was secreted out after he was captured. Um, and in the book, he gets recaptured. And so he is, he's telling all of this from prison. Um, and so why am I telling you all about Lord Haha in connection with this? It is because Lord Haha is um, largely considered to be the character upon which Howard Campbell is based. And so that um, Kurt Vonnegut based him on a real character. Now, but he's he... in Slaughterhouse Five. Yes, he is. He wears he a wild Five. outfit in Slaughterhouse Five. Oh, this is fun that I just read this. Yes. So That's I so read it. An... Oh. I read an article called American Fascism and the Historical Underpinnings of Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night by Susan Farrell from the Journal of Modern Literature. It was published last fall. Um, so it starts out with some context for Mother Night. Mother Night is one of Kurt Vonnegut's most challenged books. It was banned in Poland until it was published in 1961, I think. Um, and it takes place in 1960. So yeah, it's published in 61, takes place in 1960. So it's contemporary to the time it was published. And um, it was banned in Poland, even though his other works had all been translated and published in Poland until 1984 for its, quote, whimsical attitude toward the Nazis. So people were just upset that he wasn't taking the subject matter seriously enough. They saw it mm -hmm. as um, disrespectful and not not respecting the situation with enough weight and um just being too like making um the nazi characters in the book out to be caricatures and making it seem like they didn't have like th that the threat of them wasn't serious enough and there's a huge oh, debate. my gosh i just read like i was looking at the goodreads scores sorry to interrupt for um slaughterhouse five and so many people are giving it low scores because they're like this is not anti-war this book, which I think is wild because I think it is anti-war, right? I don't think I've ever read a more anti-war book. Right? So this seems interesting how this is received if you're going to cover these topics. Wow. Okay. That's, yeah. My students are going to love this discussion. We are really deep into this in this. It's a very small class of very smart kids, and I am so excited to talk about it with them. Um. So in, so here's another quote from the article. In Mother Night, Vonnegut is not simply inventing whimsical or fantastical figures in his depiction of Howard W. Campbell Jr. and his associates. He is exploring the very real historical phenomenon of the rise of American fascism in the 1930s, 40s, and beyond. So this person's argument is, look, these characters are based in a rooted real history and the way that Vonnegut is highlighting the absurd is to try to showcase that you know like that one it can happen and two you can't let this like that i think if i had to sum it up it's something like the world is not inevitable right like yes these, these silly weird crazy characters can rise to power 
or can remain the silly little nothings depending on how you react to them, right? And so I think that it was a really, really highlighting the impact of how people react to these threats. And have you seen Jojo Rabbit? Yes. What did you think of it? I really, really liked it. I really, really liked it too. And it made me- Oh, Venn diagram. (laughs) It made me sob. Like oh, I just... absolutely, absolutely! I didn't sob um, during the movie, and then what is the song it ends with? the 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 final song and the credits came on, and I just had a breakdown and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. So, oh my god, the end of that movie! I can't even think about it now. It just wrecked me. The end. They ran out. It was like a David Bowie song. Oh. And it got criticized so harshly. So for anybody who doesn't know, um. Jojo Rabbit is set in Nazi Germany and it is told kind of from the perspective of a little boy who is in like Hitler's at what were they called Hitler's youth yeah the Hitler youth yeah yeah. um and is very like has completely bought into all of the propaganda right like he in fact his imaginary friend is Hitler and that imaginary friend is portrayed on the screen by Taiko Atiti, who is himself um, part Jewish. And as, the director of it, the, which is, yes. if you're, if you're going to make someone be Hitler, he, you're going to, he was Hitler. And I mean, he's a whimsical, silly, funny Hitler. He's a very funny Hitler. And people were really insulted by that. Really, they were like, you can't make Hitler funny. Like, that's not okay to, I mean, and not everybody, but it, it opened up a very wide debate on like, yeah. Can, can you do that right like are you allowed to to take a figure that who is clearly that atrocious clearly that that horrible and murdered millions of people and um and turn it into this kind of like fanciful but i mean the way that it unfolds it because it's not hitler it's it's the hitler of this little boy's imagination after being fed all of this propaganda right while still being a sweet little boy so yeah sweet little boy brain plus a bunch of nazi propaganda created this whimsical hitler character he's like an imaginary friend and he does everything an imaginary friend does with all the propaganda he's fed about hitler and you watch that fall away as he has to start to confront the realities and i won't spoil it um but some really harsh serious realities so the film does not yeah that's the right face um the film does not shy away from the atrocities in the end right and in doing that the the little boy's version of this i mean i i would say he also loses his innocence right so like he loses that innocent happy you know optimistic version of life generally and then also loses the respect for hitler that he got through all of that propaganda so i mean it's showing it's it's kind of a recipe for how to break through propaganda and so and as we were just talking about media literacy that is necessary that is necessary but i will also say that satire is hard for people to understand and comprehend so maybe in a world where there's low media literacy maybe satire is more dangerous than i want it to be so i will i will admit that much so Susan Farrell is making this argument and she, her argument is that the most outlandish characters, because that's who they cited. That's who they cited when they were like, we can't, this book is awful. Um, it can't be published here. This is irresponsible because there are 
insanely outlandish characters in Mother Night. Just completely, you're like, this cannot, this is, there's no way this is real. Um, it's hilarious, like laugh out loud, hilarious. And then you're like, oh, should I be laughing? It's it's pretty disturbing in many ways. But she says that the most outlandish characters, quote, derive from real world figures that Vonnegut would have been familiar with growing up in Indianapolis in the 1930s and with his wartime and post-war experiences. So um, this is long, but I'm just going to tell you about all of them because I want to. And I had to do the research yeah. for my class anyway. So the first connection is to William Joyce. So William Joyce, who I just told you all about, so I won't go over the biography again, but one of the specific things about William Joyce that comes up in the text of Mother Night is that William Joyce tried to recruit American prisoners of war into a unit he invented to fight for Germany. In Sorry. Yes. Because yes. this is in Slaughterhouse Five. Yes. So this happened in real life. It was called the British Free Corps. And by all accounts, it was a very small and almost pathetically ineffective unit, as Susan Farrell says. And it was, quote, stationed in Dresden for training in February 1945. She says Vonnegut, a prisoner in Dresden at the time who marched through the city twice a day for his factory job, would likely have been aware of this unit and eager to satirize it in his later works while skewering Joyce himself. So... And I mean, that's a that's a really absurd moment, but it happened in real life. So, um, I mean, in the book, it's the American Free American Corps and in the um, here it's British, but it's the same concept. Right. Um, There were real Lord Ha Ha's. But notice I said Lord Ha Ha's. Um, They were so happy with the way that it had been picked up and that nickname that it became associated with any English-speaking Nazi propagandist. So it was kind of like oh. a like a Dread Pirate Roberts situation in that, like... Oh, no. That's, that's an apt comparison, but awful. Yeah. 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 So there ended up just being, like, Lord Ha Ha was just, like, sometimes they didn't know that it was a different person. It's just anybody who was giving English-speaking propaganda. Um, and so Vonnegut um, based Howard Campbell on Joyce, but also on some of these other people who had done similar work that were American or English speaking and had done the propaganda aimed at an American and British audience. Um, There is a character in the book called Reverend Dr. Lionel J.D. Jones, who publishes the White Christian Minutemen, a horribly written racist rag that's just like nonsense and trash, but then it gets really flashy because it's propped up financially by the German Nazis. And in the book, Joan gets arrested. He serves his time. He's completely unrepentant about it. He goes right back to writing it as soon as he gets out. But of course, now it's just like a beat up little pamphlet that hardly anybody's reading. Um, And in the book, this is really important to the plot because this is how Campbell, who has been kind of flying under the radar for 15 years after he was re- mysteriously released after getting caught, um, this is how people find out that he still is around and a Nazi hunter hunts him down, right? Um, so this person, this Reverend Dr. Lionel J.D. Jones, is modeled, most likely, off of the real-life character of William Dudley Pelly, an American fascist who ran for president on the Christian Party ticket in 1936 and founded the Silver Legion, a.k.a. the Silver Shirts. And there's reference to a silver shirt from Reverend Dr. Lionel J.D. Jones in the book. And um, it was modeled on Hitler's brown shirts. In the book, Dr. Jones takes over his wife's embalming school and turns it into a Bible school that issues degrees by mail to those peddling hate to give them more credibility. In real life, 
Helly founded a Bible college in Asheville, North Carolina in 1930 and taught correspondence courses primarily to 40 to 60 year old women in classes titled things like spiritual eugenics. So again, like Vonnegut was not making up yeah. outlandish characters. Like he might've been highlighting the most outlandish parts of the characters, but the things that make them seem like completely unbelievable were based on real life happenings. Um, one of the paragraphs Vonnegut includes from Lionel Jones's indictment is word for word from Pelly's actual indictment. So oh, wow, real strong evidence that not only are they connected, but that Vonnegut closely followed what happened to Pelly and how he was prosecuted for these crimes and that he incorporated that into the book. Um, there is a character called August Craptower, who is um, in the book, the fictional old bodyguard for Lionel, who is so he's his bodyguard, but he's so old and um, of such poor health that he can't even climb the stairs without having to stop every two stairs or his heart will stop working. And so he's just kind of making fun of like, you know, his frailty. Um, he is based on a composite of a man named August Claprot, which is a very similar name to August Craptor, and Edward James Smith. They were both German-Americans who were actively involved in something called the German-American Bund. I'm, I don't know if I'm saying that right. B-U-N-D? Yeah. Um, and they were a group of German-Americans who supported Hitler. So they were American citizens with German you know, ancestry. And Vonnegut was a German-American, not very far removed from immigration, who was very sensitive to the way that German-Americans were behaving and being portrayed during you know, immediately following World War II um, and World War One, for that matter. And so the perception that th this group of people who were actively supporting Hitler, I mean, he would have been really upset about that, right? And so right. he definitely would have known about them, known about their trials, seen the coverage of it. And so those characters became the composite for that August Kraptar. Um, Father Keeley, who is a fictional priest in the book, is based on the real-life Father Charles Coughlin, a popular Catholic priest who did anti-Semitic radio broadcasts. And this is the most ridiculous one. Um, Robert Sterling Wilson, who in the book is known as the Black Hitler of Harlem, is based on a real man named um, he's Sufi Abdul Hamid. In the 1930s, Hamid was, quote, often seen on top of a stepladder platform on 125th Street, the heart of Harlem's commercial district, resplendent in his black and crimson lined cape, green velvet blouse, black riding boots, and white turban. He was a black labor organizer who encouraged African-American boycotts of white stores in Harlem that refused to hire black people. But it was during the Depression, so they also weren't hiring anyone. Um, so there's dispute over whether he was being intentionally anti-Semitic or whether – so mm -hmm. it, it, it got really complicated. Yeah. And so historians to this day still dispute over his anti-Semitism. Some historians say that it was trumped up by white communists who saw him as a threat to their own control over um, the black activist community. But others, including several prominent African-American activists and journalists, say that he styled himself as a black Hitler himself and even tried to get Nazi financing for a black legion to um, spread anti-Semitism in Harlem. So there's also evidence that he really was truly that intentionally anti-Semitic and, um, you know, doing horrible things on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so the question then is, like, why would Vonnegut have known about Hamid? Because this was happening when Vonnegut was yeah. really young. And so 
But Farrell argues that because Vonnegut was writer and editor for his school's newspaper, which was one of only two daily U.S. high school papers at the time, and Hamid was covered frequently in the New York Times, and he died... He died in a plane crash in 1938, which made national news that Vonnegut would have known about him. And so very easily. Yeah. Could have known. Oh, that's amazing. So I'm going to I'm going to end with um, a quote from the conclusion of Farrell's paper. So the quote is, while bumbling pro-fascists might seem comical, their beliefs were and continue to be deeply dangerous. A lesson that should be that should reverberate, especially during our own troubled times, as the U.S. enters into a new America first period in which nativism, racism, anti-Semitism and even fascism are again on the rise. The novel's relevance, if anything, seems more urgent today than it was when it was initially published. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will yeah. also say that I'm really interested in how this article framed that Vonnegut was often not taken seriously as an author during his own time because his works were seen as like too simple, which I was thinking about when you said, you know, I've read this as a fourth grader and I think I got it and I read it as an adult and I think I got it again. And like, I, I think that it's a real shame that clearly this is somebody who carefully researched and paid so much attention and lived through being a prisoner of war at Dresden. Like he, like in what way can you invalidate that what he's bringing to the table right yeah because it's simple and people can understand it like i like right because that's the thing it's not that the concepts are not like because these are concepts that i said shaped me as a child about like just how to live in the world what is time what is death what is love what is war but he slaughterhouse five is a very i read it in one day it's a quick little book it is simple it is so strikingly quick and simple and yet leaves me with like visual images that i that i cannot shake and how do you do that how do you do both those things it's it's just genius it's just genius and it is undervalued because of the simplicity but like to do something that simple that is that meaningful is impossible it's mind-blowing and to know that it had all this real history behind it and I don't, I mean, have you tried to satirize someone? Because it's not easy. It's. <laughs> I mean, yeah, as we mentioned with pre-connections, the my poops, it doesn't really, no, it doesn't work out well or do much of anything. So uh, I don't want to follow that, but okay, okay. <laughs> um, I will be quick. I will be very quick. And this is bringing me such a great deal of joy. So this, um, the research grounding, academic grounding, I will start with, is that I've been reading um, a book by Stan Nagai, who's one of my favorite academics today. And she has a fairly new book called Theory of the Gimmick. It does a theorization of this word gimmick. And what do we think of when we think of gimmick, right? Kind of a trick or a novelty or a ploy kind of thing and goes through the history of it, she argues and theorizes that the gimmick strikes us as both working too little, right? Like it's a shortcut but or a labor-saving device, but then also like working too hard. Because the gimmick, usually there's a lot of hoops you jump through. It just takes a lot of energy. You didn't need to do it. So it's both a shortcut and the long way around, right? It's It's an interesting dichotomy there 
And Sienna Guy says, and I'm going to quote this, our feelings of misgiving stem from a sense of overvaluation bound to appraisals of deficient or excessive labor encoded in form. And basically, she uses that to argue about how we're all living under capitalism. I'm not talking about any of that. That was my jumping off point to discuss what I am really researching. And my real research, this is a genuine thing. I've been working very hard on it. Maybe I have too much time on my hands. Maybe this is my midlife crisis. We all deserve one. We do. But I found mine. I I found it. I do. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Like genuinely. You know how sometimes people at a certain age get into a thing and you're like, how did that happen? This is it. Where did this go wrong? You guys are seeing it. This is the crucible of this moment. Magic. Magic. Um, Gimmick, I learned from Santa Guy, is etymologically did start with people performing tricks and magicians. And it was a word kind of like thingamajig that magicians used to be a shorthand for a trick they were doing or a thing they were doing. And it didn't just mean a magic trick because an entire magic trick could involve a lot of gimmicks, but it was just a skill you a had to learn of it. Okay. or a piece of machinery or the gimmick. Like, how did you gimmick that? What gimmicks were involved? And so when I, I have alongside reading this Nagai kind of researching magicians and magic for a different project. And because of that, I've started watching a lot of there's a show called Penn and Teller Fool Us. And basically the magicians, Pendulette and Teller, they have other magicians perform for them and then they have to guess how they did their trick. And I think it's a very satisfying show. I like it a lot. And this is just to say I've been deeply entrenched in various ways in magic. And my midlife crisis was, I'm going to learn how to do magic. Why not? I know this is like what 12-year-old boys do and that's you know, their thing, but... This, this is... The seeds for this have been there. Didn't you learn how to eat fire at one point? Yes. Yes. And that was actually... And that was not a midlife crisis. <laughs> that was not. That was a fun party trick. One <laughs> of the performers on Penn and Teller Fool Us ate, mat, ate fire and I got really mad because I'm like, that takes no skill. I know how to do that. But... I just, I like magic. I like watching it. Um, I think it's cool. Pendulette tells a story. So again, I just want to reread really quickly this, how Sienna Guy is theorizing gimmicks for how we live under late stage capitalism, which is our feelings of misgiving stem from a sense of over-evaluation bound to appraisals of deficient or excessive labor encoded in form. And that is what magic is and i love magic because there is a sense of fun and wonder when someone fools you but it's even better when you learn how they did it more often than not because more often than not it takes so much work so much more work often an insane amount of just minutiae work and often things that could really go wrong. Like whenever I learn about how, how magic trick works, I'm always like, oh my gosh, you had so much trust that it was going to go right. Like, cause I, I just have too much anxiety for that. Like, even if I had this skill, I would mess it up out of fear of like, I'm not going to be able to do it. Like, I, yeah. So I think it's a respect for the confidence more than anything. Yeah. Just minutiae. There's, there's like pure forceful skills 
like physical skills. You hear like some of the greatest magicians or people who have been in prison and they just sit in their cell and learn this one thing and do it again and again. And it's wild. It's just wild. And Pendulette tells the story to like illustrate this point that in the 1940s, there was a magician and some point through the night at the party, he would take out, he would take his hat off and produce a little ice cube. So perfectly shaped ice cube. How does he do it? Right. We've been at this party for hours. How did he, how, where did that ice cube come from? You can't palm an ice cube. You can't put it up your sleeve. It'll melt. How did he do this? And the trick was that he started, he had built out a special hat that was so full of sponges and padding. And he starts the night going into a part, the party with a giant block of ice on his head. And he just has learned to deal with it and not act weird and create a system that the water doesn't drain out his head, that he could just be like, here's my little ice cube because it just melts. Okay. Pre-connection. I think maybe as I'm hearing you talk, the thing that I love so much about magic is that people are so committed to it when it is, I mean, it's kind of like the demo derby, right? You're so committed to building up this car. Yes, it's absurd. That you're just going to smash. And the people watching don't care how much time and love and energy you put into your car. They just want to see it get smashed into something. Like, I mean, yeah. so here you are at this party this whole time, just waiting for this moment to be like, ta-da! <laughs> Just so some people can go, oh, oh yeah, yeah, nice cool. cube, so cool, like- and just have no idea about the sheer effort that went into it. So that's one. That's one of the reasons of magic is that it's so much work for for that much work for fairly little output that you amaze people, but then they move on with their day. And it's not like you're like- going to become for most. I mean, the chances that you become like a rich magician are pretty low right like yes most people are just like out in the street busking for a dollar you know like i just you're not doing yeah. it for the financial gain you're or doing it for your midlife crisis which i have learned that i have tiny fingers that are weak because a lot of the tricks are just pure like muscle memory what to do with your fingers card tricks Oh, I'm struggling. I'm struggling so much, but it's so fun. It's so, I just like learning. I like being curious. It's so fun. And once I started researching this, I can't, now that I watch the Penn and Teller show, I can see it. And it is mind blowing to me. It's so obvious. I can't do it, but I know what to look for. And when you know what to look for, it's just right there. And so that's the second thing I love about magic is so much of magic It's just how stupid our brains are, how you can like confuse people to make them think they don't remember that that, that what they remember isn't real. I cannot remember. It was probably reading about some sort of like communication techniques. I cannot remember what it was now, but it was about a magician saying like, look, like I've learned the tricks, like I've got the tricks down. But then I learned, I had to learn how to give the speeches to distract the people enough to pull the trick off and that part was harder for me to like learn all that communication technique and to learn the like psychology of it and how to deliver it in a way that would keep them adequately looking at where I wanted them to be looking I have like some research into magic like the first known mod because I am researching magic right now deeply I am teaching myself magic I am leading up to when I go to the beach with my family this summer and maybe on vacation with you it can be a preemptive one a, a test run it can be your practice i will have a full well, you magic will have show. my incredibly cynical children to try it on oh i'm ready they will I'm... let you know I'm like i know what you did yeah oh yeah they're like the best audience so yes 
I am building up to a full maybe 20 minute magic show with many different tricks. I'm very excited. I can't tell you any of it because it's secret. No, oh, yeah. Magicians. Um, well, and I so want to see the show. I don't want to yeah. hear the secrets. So the first, so I did some research into it because I'm trying to learn about magic, which is mainly through YouTube, but I, I'm getting some books on it too. And so the very first in like modern times that we know about book written on magic is called The Discovery of Witchcraft from 1584. And that wasn't written to teach about magic, but to dispel tricks that people called witches were doing to to get them to stop being burned at the stake. It was like to save people who were being called witches. To be Aww, like, look. I thought you were going to say it was like a how to tell who is a witch, but no, it's like, look, it's not like, witchcraft. They're just doing tricks. Just, yeah, they're just they doing just tricks. They just learned to shuffle cards real well. Please don't burn them. And a fun fact of that is that book, um, William Shakespeare used that book to model the witches in Macbeth off of. Oh. So that was an influence. I will. So, yeah, I am researching magic. No, I can't tell you anything about it because I'm a magician now and it's a magician code. But I will say um, I had forgotten that so much of my love of magic came from my dad did a lot of magic shows for us when we were little, like at our birthday parties, he would put on magic shows. And so because he came to visit, I tried to show him a magic trick and it didn't go well. But then he started showing all these magic tricks. And for the rest of the week, he would pull stuff out of my husband's ear. My husband's just like cackling with delight, not knowing how it's done. And I convinced my dad to teach me one magic trick. Because because you're a magician now. I convinced him. I did prove myself that I'm a magician now. I had to do a really big trick that I will show you later that took a lot of planning and I'm so proud of it but I I I did it I proved to him I'm also a magician he taught me one of his tricks I improved on it I am loving life that is awesome aww now this might seem like a cry for help or a breakdown but I don't care because I do have a very beautiful pocket of time for the next few months where I'm not working in a capitalist money making job and I don't th- can't think of anything better but to no. just yeah. teach myself Lean magic yeah. do that <laughs> oh this is going to be a f- interesting one this one is like last okay so should we recap yes we should recap My weird thing was rarebit and how it is a word that only refers to the food and it isn't a rabbit. I love it. My weird thing was the was the um poop, the poopsie surprise slime glitter unicorns being sued by the black eyed peas because of their song, My Poops. And then we had a bonus weird thing. Bonus, the hierophone. Hierophone. Then my pop culture thing was that Liam Hemsworth is not suing ex-wife Miley Cyrus for defamation. And my pop culture thing was um, I got to see fake friends. Slaughterhouse-Five is not a sad book. TBD to be continued. And um, Michelle and I figured out why I'm not enjoying The Last of Us. My research thing was that Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night is more realistic than it seems. And my research thing was magic. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So 
Right off the bat, I feel like media literacy is very media important. Media literacy is super in here. Seeing um, what is in front of you for what it is. And when you don't do that, it can be dangerous, but also delightful because of magic. So thing, maybe things not being what they seem. Things not being what they seem. Because the lawsuit for the poopsie surprise, it seems like a parody cut and try, but it's actually revealing something deeper about digital theft rarebit is not rabbit so and then and i think i think it's something tied to like oh oh and 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 last of us video game television not yeah. being what it seems and i think but i think that it's even like i think that works i think that ties them all together but i think there's also this thing that i don't know if i can quite put it into words but it's like invisible effort Ooh, well, I like that better than just like things aren't what they seem. Like, well, what is it about? And like, when effort is invisible or invisible. Well, so we effort. talked about how like the pyrophone w- didn't hit, right? Like all these right. other things. So like these people that put all this work into it, and then it became something that I mean, neither you nor I had heard of it, and I imagine lots. Of, and certainly, it's not like an instrument that lots of people are playing, right? And yet, um, that person was so influential, and their effort is now invisible. Yeah. And um, the pooping unicorn lawsuit, if they had put in some invisible effort, they wouldn't be getting sued because they ding, could have ding, parodied ding. that song, but they couldn't just go steal somebody's track, right? Um, Rare bit, you talked about the one that you make that is so elaborate with the like <laughs> to make a peasant dish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think the last of us, I think the thing that makes it work for me and not for you is that effort to stick to the video game script, which it sounds like most of the people viewing it aren't even familiar with, right? Like the, the viewers of the TV show are not that the people who have played the game aren't watching the show but the viewership oh is but much it's larger so much wider than, absolutely yeah. absolutely um vonnegut had all these real life characters and research into this thing that everybody's like look at this absurd nonsense and that like, might have started actually... in high school for him right, that right. effort yeah and, and then, then magic is all about all invisible about effort invisible right effort. like yeah So we can't just say invisible effort. No. We have to say invisible oh. effort. Well, and then the pop culture, my pop culture thing, the invisible effort of like these people who created this fake lawsuit defamation to then, I'm not convinced that it isn't the exact same outlets that are now reporting on it. Some people think that it's a- But um, right, where's the effort? Like, yeah. is the actual effort- creating something buzzy so then you can report on what is buzzy so the effort isn't that fake document the effort is invisible because the effort is the reposting and dissemination of it and some people think that maybe it's um like miley cyrus's fans just trying to keep her song in the top it like but either way it's like effort that isn't we don't know where it's coming from or netflix trying to get the witcher to be relevant again right yeah um so what do we want to say about invisible effort? Well, it's generally good in all of our examples, right? That like it's worth it to put in the invisible effort. Well, I don't know about because was it worth it for the pyrophone? 
Yeah, until I'm going to say yes because I'm glad it exists in the uh, world. Yeah, I mean that video was delightful, and it was you were so good. I mean, we're going to have our um, derby, or then it will be. Yeah. But good. and also, if people just don't have like misses like that, the world would be a very sad place. Right, and we, right. we wouldn't gotta, have the saxophone without the pyrophone. Really, you got to swing and miss. Miss. There's no. There's no hits without misses. Yeah. But most of these are not, I mean, that's not the common theme, right? Like the common theme is not a swing and a miss. The common theme is that right. invisible effort. Invisible effort. I don't know though. I'm going to be cranky. I don't think it can just say invisible effort. No, no, effort. no, no. I agree. I agree. I'm just saying that I was off on a trail that I don't think was going to take us where we wanted to go. I mean, it's not that the effort has to be invisible, right? Like, Aren't we excited though? But are, isn't it that it seems invisible and then the discovery of it? Yeah. Like, like finding that effort that seems invisible, but then finding it is so satisfying. And then you're like, wow, it's like really like. So it's something like it might be better than you think, or it might be. It might be. It might be I, more than you see. It might be. I mean, these are two Effort, simple. effort. It's more than meets the eye. No, um, I was <laughs> it makes thinking... me think of those those like sappy posters that hung up on the wall in elementary school, or it's like you know the kitten on the branch, hang in there, or like effort, or yeah, <laughs> yeah, the motivational posters. Um, effort more than meets the eye. And what if it's just blank? And a, there's no a image. Blank poster. There's no image. <laughs> it's just effort more than meets the eye. I mean, my best thought was always let them see you sweat. And that's not what we're saying. So effort more than meets the eye. On an invisible 1995 circa motivational poster. Or the fortune cookie when you open it is blank. But if you, it's invisible ink. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I like that. I like when we have a high concept fortune cookie. Or you like to like put it under black light. UV, yeah. UV light. Yeah. Exactly. You have to put it under UV light and then it says. Effort. More than effort, meets the eye. Because then you had to put eye. in invisible effort even just to read it. And then it, but that makes it so much better, right? Yeah. Isn't it much cooler when you make that discovery, when, when, when you have to put an effort to find yeah. the invisible I, effort? I like it. Effort. More than meets the eye. Under, imagine under UV that light. under UV light. Yes. Yep. Yay. Ha Happy 40th, friends. Yes. Doing this. We're going to come to your house and make you do this live with us. Come That's... in with a microphone. Break down the door. <laughs> Say something weird. <laughs> Tell us your weird thing. I mean, like, yeah, fuck, fuck our email. No one's doing it. We are coming to where you live now. You've been warned. You have until our 50th. If you're not sitting in things by then, we're going rogue. I mean, yeah, maybe the 50th won't be made up of us smashing into people's houses. Let's <laughs> do the recordings of that. I mean, we know, we know at least like 15 of you personally. We could, we could come. We would have no qualms breaking it breaking and, and entering on and your property catherine's been practicing magic so her fingers <gasps> will be really strong by then oh i can already pick locks that is a skill <laughs> i have i learned that during quarantine which is i have really good lock picking kit so. and she can eat fire so don't think you're gonna ward her off with your <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Well, I will. That's it. That's, that's it. it. Goodbye. Good night. Um, Goodbye. Think of, put in your own invisible effort and. <laughs>